You know, I, uh, I love the hymns of the church. I just really, really, really uh, am moved when we sing those great hymns of faith and how they express an incredible and profound reality that God, in his mercy and grace, sent his own son into the world to rescue us from our sin. And uh, the, the great hymns of the faith express that uh, more profoundly, I think, than many, many other ways. And one of my favorite hymn writers is Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn writer. Actually, there's some difference of opinion, but he's credited with at least uh, 6,000 plus hymns. Some say it was closer to 9,000. I guess when you write that many, you know, what's the difference between six and nine? But he, uh, he, over a 50-year ministerial career, that means he was turning out more than two a week. So those of you aspiring uh, hymn writers, that's what your standard would be. If you want to to walk in the rarefied air of Charles Wesley. And uh, a number of the hymns that he wrote are so profound. And they remain with the church today, and they're a real treasure and blessing to the people of God. And I think uh, certainly one of his finest has to be the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It is an incredible, incredible hymn. And in particular, the second verse of that hymn has an expression Uh, that we sing together, and we sing it, but perhaps we haven't uh, reflected on it as we ought to. And it goes like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What a profound statement. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And what I want to do this morning is to take a little time together to ponder that expression. This is not going to be my more traditional, you know, exposition of a passage of Scripture. Actually, what I want to do this morning is more along the lines of kind of an inductive Bible study. We're going to look at a lot of passages to Scripture together, make a few comments along the way, but I want to, to, to explore the reality of this most profound truth, that the Son of God stepped into space and time, took to himself human flesh, that he might reveal the Father and bring his children into a saving relationship with them. Now, beloved, we have all heard the tragic tale of someone who, in a desire to rescue a person who was drowning, end up drowning themselves. How tragic that is. Beloved, when you are drowning, you need someone to save you who meets two requirements. There has to be two basic requirements for them to successfully save a drowning person. Number one, they must have a desire to do so. They must have a desire, a willingness to, to, to go into the water to pull you out. Secondly, they need to have the capacity to rescue you. To go into the water is important to be sure, but once in the water, they must be able to pull you back out, to pull you back out. 
You cannot be brought successfully to the shore by someone who is themselves going under. A rescuer cannot themselves be in need of rescuing. And the greatest need of the human condition is to be reconciled to our Creator. To be rescued from sin. To be rescued from its eternal consequences. To be rescued from its domination. And for that, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. The other religions of the world, they, they have their founders, they have their gurus, those who can tell us how to better ourselves, right? How we can be our own Savior. In effect, what they will confirm to us is that, yes, you are drowning. And uh, they're even willing to try to help make the process of going to the bottom a little bit easier, I mean, perhaps they can point in the general direction of the shoreline and and encourage you to swim harder. And perhaps you'll stay afloat for a few minutes longer. Some can even uh, give us a set of rules and tell us we deserve to drown and thus have no hope. But none of the world's religions have a savior who enters into the water and snatches his people from the undercurrent of sin. None. Many, many, many millennia ago, Job expressed the dilemma of the human condition. Where he says, in, it's recorded in Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, he says, For he that is God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both. But 2,000 years ago, God stepped into space and time. Our text for this morning, to at least begin, is in John's Gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 14 where the Apostle John records for us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Theologians call this the incarnation, the incarnation. The eternal word of God, second person of the Godhead, stepped into space and time. He took on flesh, the incarnation. And beloved, it is like a, it's like a beautiful diamond. Like a beautiful diamond. You know, you look, at a, you look at a diamond and you have to turn it in your hand, don't you? Because when you look at it from different angles, it, it catches the light differently. And it, and it just shines and, and glimmers in, in different ways. The doctrine of the incarnation is like that. It is like an amazing diamond. It has so many facets to it. Uh, 
so many angles by which we can appreciate it, by which we can be amazed by it, by which we can be awed by it. So this morning, uh, we're not going to exhaust the topic to be sure, but I want to look with you at this wonderful diamond of the incarnation under four different uh, headings, four different headings. And they're simply this. I want to look at the means. I want to look at the reality. I want to look at the purpose. And I want to look at our response to this amazing reality that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The first, the means of the incarnation, and for that I need to turn you to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The means of the incarnation, the virgin birth, the virgin birth. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Go over to Luke's gospel, to Luke's gospel, chapter 1. And beginning in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the blonde slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The accounts of the virgin birth. God came into space and time without the benefit of a human father. It is a, it is a profound thought. It's a profound thought. And to, to think about the virgin birth and implications of the virgin birth gives us some insight into the Savior. In particular, it, it brings forth at least three things that occur to me this morning. And number one, the virgin birth demonstrates that salvation is from God. That is, the the initiative lay with him. God, the Spirit, came upon Mary. God sent his angel to announce to Mary this most amazing event. That God was going to rescue his people from their sin. Secondly, the virgin birth unites the full deity in humanity in one person, not two. One person, not two. The union of a, of a human sperm and egg creates a new human person. But in the incarnation... No new person was created. But rather, the eternal person of the Son, acquired by addition and union a human nature and became the God-man. The God-man. One person, two natures. A most profound Mystery. Because of the virgin birth, third, the God man avoids the inherited legal guilt and corrupt moral nature, which are the result of normal human procreation. Remember, we said when one is drowning, one needs a person to rescue them who has both desire and capacity. They cannot be in need of rescue themselves. Fallen humanity produces fallen humanity. John's gospel records it this way in John chapter 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Because Jesus was not the result of of normal human procreation, 
He did not have a sin nature. He did not have a sin nature. His holiness was brought about by his conception by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who brought him his human nature into being and ensured its holiness. That's exactly what Luke tells us. Let your eyes go to Luke 1 and verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, what reason? The reason that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Savior came into the world with a sinless human nature by virtue of the reality that he came through the special work of the Spirit of God who brought his human nature into being. It's a profound, profound mystery. For Jesus to save his people, and he shall save his people from their sin, right? The angel says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, in order for Jesus to do that, he himself cannot be in need of a Savior. He must be the perfect one without legal guilt, without moral corruption. And it is the virgin birth that brings that about. We have the means of the incarnation, a virgin birth. Second facet of this great diamond is the reality of the incarnation. The reality of the incarnation. The God-man. One person, two natures. Let us explore briefly what the Scripture reveals to us about the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. Well, there are a few things for us. First, he was born like other children. He was born just like other children. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. A very, very normal and typical way for a baby to be brought into this world in that first century. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. Born like other children. Secondly, he experienced uh, childhood and both intellectual and spiritual growth. He experienced childhood. Childhood. Look at Luke here, chapter 2, verse 40. It says, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom And the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. And in favor with God and men. This little child grew up. 
And as he grew up, he learned things. He studied the scriptures. He grew in his wisdom and knowledge of God. And increased in favor with both God and men. He experienced childhood. He experienced the intellectual and spiritual growth as one moves through childhood. Just like every other child. Third, he grew up in a family. He grew up in a family. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Where they speak of the Savior and they say, Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? And brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? He grew up in a normal family. Brothers and sisters. Now, perhaps his father was dead by this time. It's certainly a distinct possibility and has been the general tradition within the Christian church. Father perhaps had died. Some look to the invitation in John 2 to the wedding at Cana and recognize that Mary is there, his mother is there, and his father is absent. His father passes from the scene shortly after the birth narratives, after age 12. So perhaps his father was dead. So we don't know for sure, but we do know this. He grew up in a normal family, and those around him saw it as a normal family. Grew up in a family. Fourth, he experienced human frailty. He experienced human frailty. John chapter 4 and verse 6. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. You ever get tired on a long walk? Jesus was wearied by a long walk. John chapter 19 and verse 28, where Jesus says, I thirst, I thirst. He needed liquid, just like you and I. Matthew chapter 4 and verse, 40, uh, verse 2. He was hungry, we're told. He was hungry. So, he was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. Sounds entirely human to me. Entirely human. He died. The ultimate expression of human frailty. He died. John chapter 19 and verse 33. The soldiers coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. They did not break his legs. All the experience of human frailty, every bit that you have experienced, he too experienced human frailty. Fifth, as truly human, he had a human soul and emotions. John chapter 12 and verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. 
My soul is troubled. The word means anxious, frightened. He was frightened, contemplating the cross. John chapter 11 and verse 35. He wept. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Did you ever cry as you prayed? Did you ever face such terrible anguishing circumstances in your life that as you cried out to God, the tears streamed down your cheeks? Jesus did. Jesus did. Beloved, he experienced temptation. He experienced temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have, the writer says, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands temptation. He experienced temptation. He experienced temptation at a level that you or I never experienced temptation. And the reason is, is because he never gave in. And so each and every temptation was endured all the way to the end. The problem with you and I is so often when faced with temptation, we cave in. Jesus never caved in. And in his humanity, He felt the full force, the full weight, the full seduction of temptation all the way to the end. But he was sinless. He was sinless. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Beloved, when I think about that, and I consider that reality, the the profundity of that statement in the humanity of Christ, what it says to me is that sin is not what it means to be human. Now, that's hard for, for me, and that's hard for you because... We have known no other condition. And often we think that that sin is somehow part of what it means to be human, but, but sin is not what it means to be human. Sin is an alien. Sin is an intruder. Sin is an enemy. Defeated at the cross, banished at the return of Christ. Jesus was absolutely human, in every sense of the word, yet without sin. And that gives me great hope that someday I too will be like him. He was made like us that we might be like him.
Someday, I will be free of sin. He was sinless. Eight. The people close to him saw only a man. Think about that. The people close to him, may I say closest to him, saw only a man. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 54, those who grew up around him. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They were amazed. They didn't say, well, of course he has such wisdom. Of course he has such miracle working power. He is God. Where did this man get this wisdom? These miraculous powers. John chapter 7 and verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Listen. Your family members, they grow up with you. They knew you well. They knew him well. And yet eyes blinded with sin... All they could see was a man. Contrary to the, to the pictures, if Jesus walked down the street, I don't believe he would have stood out in any way at all. What you would have seen is a man, a carpenter's son, rough hands, very common and average looking. He was a man. Nine, his humanity lasts forever. The incarnation was a one-way trip. A one-way trip. Second person of the eternal God stepped into space and time, took to himself a full human nature in a one-way trip. After his resurrection, according to John chapter 20, verse 27, he had nail prints in his hands. The print of the nails in his hands, beloved, they remain today in his hands. Luke chapter 24 and verse 39, he had flesh and bone. Luke chapter 24, verses 41 and 42, he ate broiled fish. Broiled fish. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. He promised to drink wine with his disciples in his father's kingdom. All of these things point to the reality that Jesus is fully human, not was fully human. Do you understand the significance of that? Jesus is a man. Jesus will always be a man. The God-man. This is the reality of his incarnation when looked at his humanity. Let's take a look at his deity. Let's take a look at the deity of the God-man. 
John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Word was God. The Word was God. He displayed omnipotence. Omnipotence, all-powerful. Matthew chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Matthew 8, 26 and 27. He said to his disciples, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Omnipotent. One speaks to the ocean, and it becomes calm. Only if one is God. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes, Matthew chapter 14, verse 19. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets, and there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Listen. He created food. He created food. Only God can create ex nihilo, out of nothing. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Water from wine. Verse 6, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 180 gallons of the finest wine. Water to wine. Water doesn't become wine, beloved. I don't care what you put with it. It doesn't become wine. This is a creative act of God. Creative act of God. His eternality, his eternality, that is the, the, the reality that he has no beginning and end, is an attribute of God. Jesus says to the Jews in John chapter 8 and verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The name by which God chose to reveal himself to Moses before Abraham was, I am. Or the way it's written in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Eternality. How about omniscience? Omniscience, that is the, the 
The reality that he knows all things, actual and contingent. We see glimpses of this. John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 48. John chapter 1 and verse 48. Now Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. Or how about this one to blow your mind? Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 20. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. I'm sorry. That speaks of his omnipresence. We're talking about his omniscience, aren't we? Let me back you up then. We'll get to his omnipresence. John, John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, 6 and verse 64. Jesus knows in advance who will betray him. John 6, 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, he says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He knew. He knew. Now his omnipresence. Now the reality that he is everywhere present in the entirety of his person at the same time. Back to Matthew's gospel for this one. Now we'll blow your minds. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. I am there in their midst. Or Matthew 28 and verse 20. Lo, I am with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As God, Jesus is everywhere present. As a man, he is localized in a human body. Let your mind hold those two amazing realities in tension. In tension. We have the means of the incarnation, the virgin birth, the reality of the incarnation. One person, two natures, human and divine. Third, the purpose of the incarnation. The purpose of the incarnation. Number one, to reveal God to us. To reveal God to us. God reveals himself in nature and in conscience. But according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, the revelation of God through nature and conscience cannot save, it can only condemn. Results in universal condemnation. It is only the incarnation that, that peels back the veil enough for God to save. The incarnation answers the question, what is God like? 
What is God like? John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Show us the Father, the disciples said. John chapter 14 and verse 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The incarnation reveals God to us. What is God like? Take a good long look at Jesus. Second, the incarnation provides an example for our lives. As a man, Jesus provides the pattern for us to follow for our lives. Every other pattern that we have of humanity is is not True, it is false, it is broken by sin. We might say, beloved, that we are all insane. We are all insane. Only in the incarnation do we have a true pattern of humanity. What is a human being and life supposed to be about? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He is an example for us to follow. First John chapter 2, verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, to make us like his son. Make us like his son. Jesus is the example of your life. He is the one to pattern your life after. thinking about this and uh, it's Christmas time you know Christmas gifts come and and uh, sometimes some assembly is required right people approach that in different ways uh, some people throw the instructions away right that we don't need instructions those are unnecessary for people who don't know what they're doing so some try to build uh, the toy, whatever it is, but they, you know, either just try to figure it out on their own or maybe they, uh, they prop up the picture on the box and uh, then they build it, right? And then they're amazed at the end at how many extra parts the company sends out each time. But we need a full set of instructions. We need the full owner's manual. We need to build it according to the designer's pattern. Jesus is that pattern. We're not to model our lives after any person but one. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So follow Christ. He provides an example for our lives. Third, he provides an the only acceptable and permanent sacrifice for our sins. The only permanent and acceptable sacrifice for our sins. 
Sin requires the death penalty. That is the penalty of sin. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, the soul that sins will die. It will die. But God cannot die. But God cannot die. So in order for Jesus to be our Savior and to fulfill the requirement of the law, he must be human. He must be human. But ordinary humans would never do because ordinary humans have to die for their own sin. We need a, we need a man who can die and have that death be a substitute for us. And we need, a, we need a person who can die whose death is of sufficient value to atone for the sin of all his people. One person, two natures, the God-man. The God-man. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The writer says, listen, the reality that you have to come over and over again under the old covenant and offer an animal in your place merely demonstrates the reality that your sin has never been dealt with. Never been dealt with. Because an animal can never stand in for a man. An animal can never stand in for one who bears the image of God. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Ha, what a wonderful reality the fact that jesus is seated even now at the right hand of god is proof positive that for his people their sin has been dealt with once and for all one sacrifice or as the apostle paul puts it in first timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 there is one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus Well, what other purposes are there in the incarnation? Well, number four. It is to fulfill the Davidic covenant. To fulfill the Davidic covenant. Back to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. In the words of the angel. In verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. 
For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Only a man sits on a throne. Only God sits there forever. He is the God-man, fulfilling the promise to David of a descendant to sit on David's throne forever and ever. Fifth, purpose of the incarnation, to become a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we draw near to Christ, he sympathizes with us. He doesn't sit there in judgment, scolding or frowning. Tapping his toe, looking over the top of his half glasses. He is sympathetic. He says, Come, come, find grace, find grace in my cross. Wayne Grudem gives the following to, to illustrate this reality of a sympathetic high priest and I think it kind of works, so I'm going to share it with you. If you don't think it works, then you can ignore it. But he talks about this. He, he, he talks about a, a male doctor of obstetrics. A male doctor of, of obstetrics. And he, and he says, listen, a male doctor can, understands the birth process. Understands it really well. Knows all of the the various uh, minutiae and details involved in the birth process. But he's never born a child. But he has never born a child. A female doctor of obstetrics who has brought a child into the world knows all the same things, but adds to it the experiential knowledge of actually birthing a child. Jesus knows our pains. He knows our pains. And he knows them through personal, experiential knowledge. That's what the writer says. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. He has been through it. He has been through it. And only the incarnation makes that possible. Makes it possible. He's a sympathetic high priest. Sixth purpose in the incarnation. It makes him qualified to judge. It makes him qualified to judge. John chapter 5 verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. He's given all judgment to the son. It is the God man who will judge humanity. Will judge humanity in the end. And by the way, beloved, uh, I believe it's his humanity that uh, renders all excuses null and void. 
Null and void. If you'd only known what my life was like. Really. Really. If you'd have only known the temptations that came upon me. Really. If you'd only known how hard it is to live for God in the midst of an evil generation. Really. I believe it's his humanity that puts down all excuse. He is our judge. That leaves us finally with this last facet, our response. What do we do with all of this? What is our response? What is the proper response based upon all these things and more? The revelation of God in Christ is given to us in the New Testament. What is the proper response? It is to wonder. It is to worship. It is to wonder and it is to worship. When you think upon the incredible truth that we celebrate this week, that the second person of the triune God stepped into space and time, to take to himself a human nature that in one person we would have both divine and human forever and ever and ever, and that that sacred brow took upon himself the guilt and punishment for the sin of his people for all time. It should cause you to wonder. If you've got Jesus figured out, you don't know Jesus. If you spend... even just a few minutes contemplating Jesus, you should fall to your knees. Fall to your knees in wonder. Fall to your knees in worship. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And in Philippians chapter 2, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wonder and worship. Wonder and worship. If you do not know this glorious one, I invite you this morning to come to him. To come to him. To turn from your sin. To confess and acknowledge the reality that you are a stranger to God. That you have violated his covenants in thought, word, and deed. That you deserve eternal punishment. But that God so loved the world that he sent his own son. That whoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life.
I invite you this morning to wonder and worship. And beloved, if you know him this morning, if he is your savior this morning, Christmas is coming in a few days. May the busyness of the season not crowd out the wonder and worship of this most profound gift. Let's pray. Father, we have barely scratched the surface. Barely scratched the surface. With the mystery of godliness. How awesome. How profound. How much it lies beyond us. And yet how much we can understand. Because you have revealed it to us through your word. May your Holy Spirit do his good work in us. And drive us to our knees. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.